Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr, and this week's word is artificial intelligence. Human beings have long been fascinated by artificial intelligence. Science fiction could hardly exist without it. But machines that can solve problems by a process that simulates thinking belong to our modern age, and they loom very large in any imagination of our future. With the increasing power of computers... The range and potential of AI has developed remarkably, as demonstrated, for example, in changes in the manufacturing workplace, in innovations like driverless vehicles, and the well-publicized successes of computers against masters of complex games like chess and Go. So how is artificial intelligence helping us to solve the problems that beset us? How intelligent is artificial intelligence? Is there any limit in theory to what it can do? How is artificial intelligence changing the way humans work and the way they think? Can a computer surpass human beings in independent thinking? And if so, what happens next? And meanwhile, developments in artificial intelligence work backwards too, in the sense that if a computer can be made to work like a human brain, we're inclined to think that the human brain is a kind of computer. So can artificial intelligence help us to think more clearly about what intelligence is? I'm joined this week by Margie Yang, chairman of Eskel, a businesswoman who's invested in robotics and automation for her company and who is involved with CSAIL, the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the United States, and by Professor Norman Tian, Dean of Engineering at Hong Kong University, who's a specialist in micro and nanotechnology. So, Norman, starting with you, can you just tell us something of the headlines of the history of artificial intelligence? How old is it? I'd say uh, if you look at uh, artificial intelligence, uh, it started in concept with artificial beings. And, in fact, in 1920, uh, the word uh, robot was first coined by a Czech uh, playwright who uh, wrote about artificial humanoids. Mm. And so if you say, well, since 1920, you really have artificial beings, which involves artificial intelligence. Uh, Then if you move a little bit forward in time uh, to, let's say, World War II, Okay. Uh, one of the uh, most famous uh, British scientists out there, Alan Turing, which there was the movie The Imitation Game recently. Alan Turing, yes. About. Uh, and Turing was working on uh, essentially artificial intelligence. He's kind of known as uh, one of the fathers of uh, AI. And in fact, uh, he uh, kind of created this uh, Turing test. Which is? And the Turing test is uh, really uh, a, a test for computers. Uh, to pass the Turing test, a computer would have to be able to convince a human that it was human. Right. So, you know, essentially you have a test where there's a human and a computer, and if the, uh, the, the third party couldn't tell the difference between the two, then the computer passed the test. So really, that's, this is, you know, World War II, right? Right after World War II. And so, uh, you know, artificial intelligence has really been around, and there's been a continuous development. Uh, people will talk about the specific technical field of uh, artificial intelligence uh, maybe uh, being uh, born in, uh, in the late 1950s at a conference uh, at uh, one of the universities in the U.S. But uh, I would say that there's been a continuum in terms of uh, development of uh, AI. Okay, so we're seeing it, just talking about the 20th century, we're seeing it actually be born in, in literature, as a matter of fact, as the imagination of a, a machine that could behave like a human. 
then when we come to Alan Turing, it's the idea that, in theory, a machine might be developed, right. programmed, and, and built to such an extent that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the thinking of that machine. Correct. But presumably in Turing's time, there was no such machine. In Turing's time, there was no such machine. And in fact, uh, why people are talking about uh, artificial intelligence today is because the field needed some other uh, areas to mature, to become powerful enough. And this had to do with, in fact, the electronics, you know, the actual computer hardware, uh, in terms of robots, the mechanical hardware. So in Turing's time, uh, in fact, he tried to invent a chess-playing robot, a chess-playing uh, computer mm -hmm. program. But there wasn't a powerful enough computer to be able to uh, implement that program. So they actually had a simulated match in which Turing pretended to be the computer and followed the program, you know, yeah. line by line, okay. right, and lost to the chess master. Right. Okay. So so even you're talking about in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, you know, into the 80s, uh, computers and, uh, you know, the amount of memory you could have, the uh, processing speeds just weren't powerful enough to be able to do something uh, in, in terms of to make AI, you know, reach its, uh, you know, full uh, realization, right? maybe not even today, but now mm -hmm. at least it's, uh, it's, uh, it's much more practical. Manji, um, let me come to you, and, and uh, because I'm already slightly befogged in my own mind about what is special about artificial intelligence. I know what a machine is. I think I probably know what a robot is, but artificial intelligence is something beyond that. Is that right? Well, I think special in the um, Norman was just talking about the 1956 Dartmouth conference. Right. So a bunch of guys, including John McCarthy, um, Marv Minsky, uh, Alan Newell, a lot of those sort of the really founders, they were uh, focusing on creating, quote, unquote, thinking machines. Okay. And so John McCarthy is the person who coined the term artificial intelligence, and he defined it as the science and engineering of making intelligent machines. Intelligent machines. And from there, um, now one of the hubs of this intellectual development is at MIT. Mm -hmm. So uh, Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papad, these guys had, you were saying earlier, Artificial intelligence and human intelligence, a lot of it, they are at this one, on the one hand, they're doing computer science, and the, on the other side, they're looking at human learning. Learning is an area of interest. How do humans learn? How do machines learn? Can we borrow the experience when we see how machines learn to help humans to learn better, mm -hmm. etc.? So, um, a lot of these guys um, are focused on learning. And um, artificial intelligence, a lot of it is learning. Is it thinking? I mean, so the, the, the aim is to build intelligent machines. These people at the Dartmouth Conference are engineers, is that right? Right. M mostly engineers. Is it their aim to Construct a machine that can think in the way that that I think. Well, 
or is there because we always I mean, one thing that's often said about computers, for example, by lay people is computers are not very smart. All they can do is add one and two. Right. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So Norman. is that so the, the step from that to actual thinking is a huge step. So so what you, people yeah. have been doing over the last decades is kind of breaking down are all the elements. Uh, in the thinking process, mm-hmm. right? So as uh, Margie said, there is learning. And learning has been the area that in the initial early days was the hardest to uh, to develop. And there's been great strides recently. But then there is uh, things such as perception, right? Then there are things like planning, yeah. right? There is uh, all, all decision-making. Decision-making. decision-making, memory, right? These are all aspects of thinking. And if you look at this over the last few decades uh, in whether that's computer science or in the rest of the engineering fields, people have been making great strides. So memory and perception and motion in planning and motion planning, uh, you know, all of this. And now more recently, uh, learning, because uh, you talk about the AlphaGo mm-hmm. that beat the uh, Go uh, the, 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 machine the, the machine that won the Go, uh, Go Master. Go Master. Um, that was a major accomplishment in deep learning, as they call it. So, so people are breaking down that thinking, the elements that go into thinking and making advances in each one of those areas. So, but, you know, if we challenge AlphaGo to a game of tic-tac-toe, it may not be able to beat couldn't, us. Couldn't do it. Right. As Margie pointed out, if you give AlphaGo a new game, it won't be able to play that game yet. Mm-hmm. However, if you just look at AlphaGo itself, or, or Go, the game, um, when Deep Blue beat... Um, Kasparov, Gary, Gary Kasparov, Kasparov. Mm-hmm. right, in chess. That was one which, uh, Douglas, you were talking about uh, where the computer just went through, you know, hun- hundreds of millions of moves and, you know, decided which one's the best one. With Go, uh, the number of moves is so much, much more than mm-hmm. in chess. Mm-hmm. You can't just go through everything. So what Go was, a, AlphaGo was a demonstration of is a, a, a machine, artificial intelligence, that learned Enough. With the help of some very clever humans right. who designed, made decisions about um, how they are going to um, beat the go master through algorithms. Right. So with these algorithms, AlphaGo did not need to go through all the moves. So it's actually… It developed a strategy. Developing a strategy of its own. Yes. Not… Not something that's, that it's learning and then remembering. No. Uh, well, it, no, no. I'm not sure. No. <laughs> See, I, I, I think the, the, what Norman was saying yeah. that um, Deep Blue, what we would say, brute forced it by. So it would go through all, all the possible moves. This is and the And we would look at machine. all the outcomes yeah. and choose the one that is the optimal. Okay. But because Go is a much bigger game. So um, the, the design is done in such a way that apparently it only looks at the next 20, game, 20 steps. Right. Now, that's not exhaustive. Mm-hmm. And then they had to make the humans made some decisions about the algorithm that they chose. So then AlphaGo went ahead following those rules and learned through that. Now, AlphaGo is can keep on playing. So AlphaGo does learn because AlphaGo will keep on playing um, this game throughout the day. It doesn't get tired. And then it remembers, unlike 
menopausal women. <laughs> um, that's a distinct well, that's, advantage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's got a mind. Are we, are we ready to say Ooh. that? Uh, I'm staring meaningfully at Norman. Has it got a mind? Or, or, or what has it? I'm also staring at Norman. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's looking at me. Um, well, this is what I was saying, is, is what do you uh, call a mind, right? Mm. So, you know, there are some people who say the mind is part of, is, you know, the brain. And the brain is uh, made up of these different elements, vision, perception, you know, all the things that we're talking about. Uh, so, um, but then there are others who say there's something more intangible, right, mm. behind a mind, Right. Besides all the brain cells, neurons and all of those things. So I think that's a very I think that's a question in terms of what you're what a person's definition, this individual is, definition of the mind is. It's more of a philosophical question. Right. But, well, but all right. Let me rephrase it. It can think for itself. It right. can think independently. Yeah. OK. But yeah. So, so I think one of the things you're going to see with uh, artificial intelligence is that uh, there are some brain or thinking functions mm-hmm. that the that the machine will be able to do better than humans. They will be able to do it faster, yes. or they may have a better memory, or they may have uh, you know uh, 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 things of this nature, right? right. So, uh, but then there, there are other things we hope that uh, human brains can still do better than machines for the moment. <laughs> We can, perhaps we can come on to the, the future later. But Margie, let me come back to you and ask something, a more practical question, and that is about artificial intelligence in the workplace. Now, you're, you're, you're an employer, right? You have a lot of employees. And as I understand it, you are doing what you can to improve... Productivity. Work, productivity. Okay. So tell us a bit about how this works. Well... Um, we're in the manufacturing sector mm-hmm. and we're constantly thinking of how to raise the productivity. See, I come from the school, I went to MIT and I'm very much of the school that technology is there for humans to use. So when we have a challenge such as how to raise the productivity, I have workers, we would like their standard of living to go up. So how do we raise their productivity? Because I can't just hand out money to them. First, well, we look at the managers and say, okay, we can learn to manage better, mm-hmm. use, make better use of their time. And then we look at tools that we can give them. So in the kitchen, okay, let's buy a dishwashing machine. Otherwise, how can we give this woman a higher income? Um, in other areas, we will try to see, ah, um, here is an opportunity for more accurate placement of, um, let's say, material. And that will make the product more consistent, less rework. Another reason why the worker will have a higher income. So we're looking at it like that. Our big challenge is, how do I make the worker who didn't go to MIT feel the same way as I do? Mm. Because most workers, particularly in my um, industry, have which not had textile, the, right? which is textile and yeah. apparel. Yeah. Most of my colleagues have not had the benefit 
of um, education. So they sometimes are afraid of technology. So the first challenge, and it's been very interesting because I have a group of colleagues who are very fortunate, like myself, who had the benefit of an education. So we are now taking advantage of technology that can... There, there used to be a myth that says you can't teach 45-year-old women technology unless they've been trained as engineers. Mm-hmm. Now, today, a lot of people, such as um, the group at CSAIL, have found ways of teaching little children how to make apps, etc. And we decided that we would try the same on our um, workers. And we start off by asking them, have you been sort of snubbed by your son who waves his uh, smartphone at you, trying to tell, send you the message that you, the mom, is not with it, and he, the child, knows everything. Now, if you can tell that kid, but mom has made an app, uh, most of the mothers are very thrilled by that thought. So if we could, through those ways, get them excited about learning how to make an app, and then they will feel that they have, they can master technology. So of course, there are many, lots of different tricks, but we're thinking of different ways of getting our colleagues to feel that they could be the master of the technology rather than the other way around. I think that's uh, really important because, you know, going back to what uh, Douglas was asking in terms of AI as a mind and what Margie just said in terms of mastering the technology, I think the goal here is as AI becomes, quote unquote, smarter, you have better abilities, it will help people do more and be more productive as long as they feel confident that they're the master of that technology. Mm. I mean, already you see on the stock exchange, most of the trading is done by computers because it can be done faster. But still the control, the ultimate control is with the human. And so, you know, this, I think the idea here is, is that AI can help enhance what people can do. That's what we're trying to look for. Let's think, because uh, we think, uh, I, I suppose we think initially of AI as something in the manufacturing workplace. It's kind of it's a form of automation that makes things faster, makes people more productive. But there are other industries and areas of work in which it's becoming increasingly prominent. Right? You mentioned finance, finance, for example, right. things like um, government, perhaps government. I think in general, things that require paperwork, for example, yeah. uh, will all go to uh, machines. Uh, in the future. Yeah, well, wait, wait a minute. Be careful what you're saying, Owen, because people are listening to this. Perhaps there are some civil servants thinking, crikey, what's going to happen? You know, if a machine is doing all the work, what am I doing? Because that's the flip side of productivity, isn't it? Fewer people are required to accomplish the same work. So what's going to happen to them? Well, if you look at history in terms of technology, right, so each technological wave, each one of these uh, industrial revolutions or other kinds of revolutions, what you've done is in fact uh, increase the uh, economies or the economy of the world. And with the increase in the economy, the increase in wealth, you've in fact increased jobs, but the jobs are new kinds of jobs. Right, yeah. and uh, they're good jobs. They can be good jobs, but it's new kind of jobs, and there, I think, will be jobs that we haven't imagined yet. So, I hope so. <laughs> I think it frees up the time of those, uh, whether they are civil servants mm-hmm. or um, 
workers in production line to away from doing the mundane work, but then to start looking at the result, or rather the summary. So instead of compiling statistics, now I can look at the statistics and make the decision. Because we have to remember, value is created not for compiling the numbers, but for looking at the numbers and then making, so which becomes by then information, and then converting that into better management decisions. And right now we have a lot of, um, what we, the kind of work that we're replacing is very, work with very low value add. And that's why that group of people who are doing that work, their income can't go up. You know, how much more can you afford to give people? Now what we need to do is to help these people to then to use the data that was compiled now by the machine. And then we need to kind of help these people to become users of the information. Therefore, that involves how do we educate them, quote unquote, you know, a very broad use of the word education to then enable whether it is a civil servant, um, the civil servant will be able to make better decisions. Yes. Uh, and, and that's very important because then they we will have more people doing value creation type of work than this non-value adding uh, paperwork. That's very good. And I, I understand and, and take that point entirely. You're talking about the way, the, in a sense, the, the machines can look after the information. Look at the data. The, the, the machines are the handling data. the data. Human beings are required to turn that information into knowledge. Right. And, and then make and, decisions. And yeah. make decisions. Yeah. But Add value. Meanwhile, people like Norman are, are continually improving the machine so that you know, how long is it going to take before the, the computers are better than us at making the decisions? What happens then? <laughs> uh, first of all, it's going to take a, a, a lot of resource before we get there. In the meantime, we also see uh, people like Norman, educators, having more tools at their disposal to educate. Because one of the reasons for the problem that we're now having this digital divide um, is because a lot of the people do not have the benefit of a better education. I'm not saying everyone has to have the same education, but we need to elevate education in general um, to a higher level. It's not competing against the machine. It's trying to improve our standard of living. That's the ultimate goal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was, I was when you were just talking about um, technology helping education, I mean, computers, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, decades ago when there were no computers and when, you, when, you know, you use uh, simple calculators or even before that when it was slide rules or abacus, there was uh, a limit to what a student could learn or experience yes. in school. But now, today, you have every, every student has a computer. So they're learning now with more value added to it than a long time ago. So this is what you're talking about, Margie, mm. right? Uh, right? Being able to create and do more. Yeah. And I think, well, you know, we were talking about, you were talking about creativity. Yes. And I remember an example. Uh, architects now are taught to use the software to sketch. Many architects have told me they, the students must not lose the ability of freehand sketching because the programs, the softwares, actually limit their creativity. 
Mm-hmm. I think this is a pretty good um, analogy if you think about it, um, why humans are still much more uh, creative, and I think we will continue to become more and more creative with more and more technology. Okay. You don't look convinced. Uh, well, <laughs> I put a, a, a challenge to, to both of you. I don't know if either of you can take this up. Stephen Hawking, a very well-known and, and respected scientist, he says that the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. I, I you know, I think it was a very uh, broad statement, mm. and there's different elements very to it, right? Because one of the dangers for people with these, this great artificial intelligence around is you get lazy, you get complacent, you let the machines do it for you. Well, you get redundant. Or you get redundant, yes. even at the, if, you, if you don't, right? Uh, really uh, push yourselves. And so I think that's one of the dangers is uh, you just let the machines uh, take over. All, first, it would be the mundane tasks. Then as the machines get better, be more and more of these different tasks and you, you, you yeah, you become redundant. Mm. Um, I think uh, the other aspect is that as uh, it's related to this. If you take this uh, further and further, you mentioned driverless vehicles. Yeah. Right at the beginning. So basically, what you're doing is you're putting, uh, you're you're you know you're letting a car drive. So, so when a car drives compl- by itself, then it's going to have to make judgment mm-hmm. questions. And one of the uh, traditional uh, uh, ethical uh, dilemmas has been this: uh, what people call the trolley car uh, dilemma. But if you take a driverless vehicle, you're driving down the road, and the car uh, you're carrying a you know, a mother and a baby or a child, and then you're coming to a, to a road situation where uh, the car identifies one, two, three, four, five people, doesn't matter, maybe one person who is a very famous celebrity, okay, or, or five uh, people, and the car has to decide if it just plows, runs uh, through these people and probably kill them, or thereby saving the mother and child, saving the, the mother and, and child in the car, or uh, you know diverting you know off the road and possibly killing the mother and child. But then the car is making a judgment. The car is making the decision. You're right yeah. on a life and death. I think this is partly of what Stephen Hawking is talking about. Mm-hmm. If you start to let machines make life and death decisions, and as machines get more powerful, there's a risk mm-hmm. right oh. here. Well, I, I, no, sorry. No, yeah, finish. No, no. Yes. Okay. And I think this, we have to then say, Drew Faust, the president of Harvard, said, apart from the School of Engineering, that's why we must have the other schools, especially those that teach values. Oh, so we goodness. did. It's not the machine. It's the people. So who are the people who are uh, programming the machines? Um they need, we need to focus on uh, providing better values. So she says, that's why Michael Sandel's course on justice is still going to be so relevant with all the talk of AI and engineering. You know, pardon, I know Norman is dean of engineering, but all the engineers should be going over to take philosophy courses in ethics because the key is we need to focus on Getting these smart, the smarter the, the smarter the kid, the more we need to have them have good values, and I think that's the best. 
Very good. That's a very inspiring moment on which to bring our discussion to an end because we have to use up all our time. Let me thank both of my guests, Margie Yang and Norman Tien, and thank you very much for listening.